You are listening to the Holy Cannoli Podcast. It's all about making sense of life, who we are, and why we're here. Life is sacred and life is strange. And here's our dad, Tony Gapastone. Yo, Jelani. Hey. All right, man. So, hey, let's jump. Let's just jump right in. This, uh... This is like super cool for me because I really care about what we're going to talk about today. And we have this cool yeah. United history 21 years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So give me the update, dude. So the podcast is called the Holy Cannoli podcast. And we talk about all right. things, you know, theology and sacred and strange. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and we're in this uh, discussion. I, listened, I, I was actually introduced to Holy Cannoli with your, um, I think you had at least two episodes with uh, Dan Collison. And, oh, okay. Yes, I had Dan. Yes, 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 yes. And so, for obvious reasons, because of my history with the ECC, I was very yeah. interested in that, and uh, and I appreciated it. I appreciated right the kind of wit, the breadth of the conversation surrounding his ministry and and that whole that whole deal. Cool. Well, good. You know a little bit how it goes. Then awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening. So yeah. So let's just jump in. I guess for the listeners. Uh, give a little bio for what life has been like. So we met in Chicago. I think it was a year ahead of you because I graduated in ninety. Yeah, 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 I think so. Ninety eight. Did you do ninety nine? Um, well, I start. Well, let me think. I started as a freshman in ninety six. Okay. Um, and so, so I was a couple years ahead of you because I was a junior in yeah. ninety six. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah. Anyway, and so um, since my North Park years, essentially what I've been doing is. Um, I spent probably the first, uh, I haven't counted, the first several, like 10 to 12 years um, doing worship ministry. Uh Uh, So my wife and I got married in Chicago, and then we moved to Portland, and um, I took over the worship ministry at the church that my dad had started, one of the first intentionally multi-ethnic churches in our denomination. And I did that for a while and kind of developed in my um, passion for for multicultural worship music and also kind of I didn't this wasn't really intentional. But as, as I was doing this, I was really learning just leadership in general, because um, worship ministry, you know, is not just about becoming proficient musically, but it's also about um, marshalling and, and uh, you know, getting volunteers and using resources well and trying to create a culture and a, um, a sense of um, kind of united vision around what it means to worship God and, and how do we do that and give our all into it. And I had really gotten to a point where I was really passionate about um, multi-ethnic music and trying to pursue that and to be proficient and culturally competent. And there was just sort of this new crest of worship leaders were moving in those direction. And, you know, this is, you know, I was like, you know, a huge fan of like Israel Houghton and, and kind of a lot of the names in that sphere. But what I realized was, uh, oh, and let me also say, I also um, started getting linked up with other uh, really passionate uh, multicultural worship uh, people across the nation. I, uh, I helped to found um, an organization called the Multicultural Worship Leaders Network, hmm. which um, runs in tandem with another organization called Mosaics Global. And both of that, Mosaics Global is all about um, 
uh, multi-ethnic church in general, multicultural churches uh, prospering and being established and whatever. And so this Multicultural Worship Leaders Network sort of was an outgrowth of that. And so I started developing all these relationships, primarily over the internet, but also traveling to conferences and, and connecting with some great people like uh, Nikki Lerner and David M. Bailey and Josh Davis and all these really wonderful people. And so this area of my life was kind of flowering in terms of making connections. But what I started finding out locally was that not only was there not the same kind of hunger for that um, in my town, because I, you know, I live in Portland, um, or actually I'm from Portland. Technically, I live in, in Hillsboro, which is a summer. But anyway, the point is, not only was there not this like passion for it, but in fact, a lot of the churches in our area were very um, insular, and I found that I needed to make a really difficult choice if I was going to continue in that um, career field, because it meant that either I was going to have to downplay that side of me and be willing to kind of conform to the more standard evangelical ethic uh, of like, you know, doing all the like Chris Tomlin and Matt Redman and just following the like CCLI playbook um, because the churches that wanted to hire me that were, um, I, I hate to use this word, but successful enough um, to uh, to be able to have a full-time position, yeah. that's what they wanted from their worship leader. And the other churches that I knew of, the other pastors or, or church leaders who were really passionate about trying to do authentic multi-ethnic ministry, um, were not doing that well. And so they couldn't afford to hire me. Like they couldn't afford to pay me what I was worth to do what they wanted. Yeah. But the other churches were like, we, you know, we like you and we wouldn't mind having a black guy here, but you just need to do all of these normal white songs that we all know and love. Yeah. And, um, and so as you can imagine, I kind of got burnt out on that because I felt like that's, that's not, that's not me. Yeah. And so, um, what I ended up happening was I kind of bounced around for a little bit. I took a job as a, a music teacher at a Lutheran school for a year and that was super fun, but didn't make enough money and whatever. And then I actually, at this point I was kind of like, okay, God, I'll, I need something totally different. And so um, for about a year, I worked with our um, local uh, 911 uh, call center. Uh, call center is not the right term, but the um, emergency communication center. And so I, I trained to be a uh, 911 dispatcher and call taker. Hmm. And I found that work tremendously rewarding and really invigorating. And I loved it right up until the point where I realized uh, it was too tough for me to pull it off. Like I was trying to basically shift gears and um, learn this whole new way of thinking and doing uh, at 38, um, uh, learning alongside other people who were in their like early 20s. Yeah. And, and so it was one of those things where I really enjoyed the work and I enjoyed the community of people, but the intensity of it and the um, inability that I had to react uh, quickly enough and uh, synthesize all the information to be able to spit it back in the most effective ways. You know, there's training and all of that, but still it's a really demanding thing. And I got to the point where I realized I can't quite rise to the level that they need me uh, to be at. And, um, and if I keep pushing myself, um, 
I'm either going to really hurt myself and do damage to myself, or I'm going to put somebody else at risk. Oh yeah. So, um, someone else, literally someone else's life, right? Oh yeah, Yeah. exactly. You know, like everybody I talk to, they're having the worst days of their life. And so they, they are not at their best. So they need me to be at my best. Um, and if I feel like I'm not at my best, then I'm not really helping them. So anyway, but let me just, so let really me just back story. up because that's really interesting that you find yourself in this space. Now I'm not devaluing the work of 911. Like you said, it's obviously very important work in, in, in a city and a culture to, to help yeah. navigate people who are in need with those who are going to help provide those emergency resources. But that wasn't your passion. You, music has always well, been your thing, right? It, yes. Well, yes and no. I mean, <laughs> Uh, music has definitely always been a huge part of my life. I come from a very musical family. Music is always a really foundational element um, that I lean on. And I mean, you know, I like to joke. Sometimes I'll ask people, like, do you like music? And no one says no. No one doesn't like music. Like, they may not like certain kinds of music. But music is just like everywhere. It's just a thing that we all breathe and, and need and, and love in some ways. But what I was hesitant to do is I didn't want to be pigeonholed is just a music guy because I learned in, in the time that I spent doing worship music, what I realized was that music was a, um, a community galvanizing force. Yeah. And really part of what I was about in trying to do that was building community. Right. And so, and that's, I mean, like even now, like, um, one of the things, this is a little bit of a departure, but one of the things that I miss from my growing up years in the 80s and 90s is the death of terrestrial radio. And it's not that I love the music that got played on terrestrial radio, because most of the music that gets played on commercial terrestrial radio, I couldn't care less about. Why but are you calling miss, it terrestrial radio? I've never heard of that before outside of extraterrestrial. Oh, well, I, the term terrestrial is just to d- differentiate from internet radio. Okay. Because when people say, yeah, so I mean, like the radio that like you can play in your car, Got you know, you. 90.4, whatever, whatever. Like, that's, that's called terrestrial radio? I just learned something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All I know is that we're extraterrestrial from E.T., from Steven Spielberg's <laughs> movie. <laughs> terrestrial just means, like, along the ground. See, that means I know nothing yeah. in life, so thank you, Jelani. No, no, it's okay. all good. It's all good. I, also, I'm a word nerd in general, so you're just going to hear it. some words pop up out of my mouth, and you're going to go, what? So that's, my, uh, that's one of my confessions of a pastor. I feel sometimes so inadequate in regards to knowledge in life, and so bring more of that to me, because I, I need that. That's great. All right, keep well, going. Well, I feel like we're going to be good for each other, because I actually have the opposite thing. Like, I love big words, and so sometimes my <laughs> challenge is to, like, say something quickly and succinctly, and not reach for the like esoteric a, uh, SAT word just because I can't. So your um, so your confession is you can't like you can't really hang with people like me because we don't know how to. How to no 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 no. My confession, my confession. To be honest, my confession is sometimes I use big words as a way of like trying to burnish my image and to show off how uh, smart I am there you go. instead of just being. Instead of just thinking about what's going to communicate most effectively. Sure, sure, I guess. Um, And I have this love of words, and so sometimes I put my love of words and my love of, of like, being an orator above what's actually going to help this person that I'm talking to. Yeah, there you go. Uh, And so, like, that, you know, so I have to to work on that. Um, And sometimes my wife is always like... Dude, just say it. Just stop. Because I'll be like, I'll be in the middle of a thing and I'll like, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? And she's like, I'm sure you have a word. Just pick one. 
And your 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 brain, your Rolodex is going through twenty seven different words that you could use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'm like, oh, but there's just the right What's one. What's the right just one? The, that, yes, that's it. I Jel- got it. Jelani, I'm gonna let you get back to your thing, but I gotta tell you this funny thing. I was in seminary, and the professor was talking about. Um, just how we preach and teach and theology it was some pastor class, and she kept saying pedagogy and the ped- pedagogical something something. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know what pedagogy is. Yeah, and this was before we had like internet in the class. So afterwards, I'm like, um, I don't know what pedagogy is. And she's like, it's just teaching, it's educating, or it's the or something to that effect. I can't even right. remember. But I was like, oh my gosh, I yeah. should know that. I'm so stupid. Anyway, all right. But you know what, though? Let me just give you credit for asking the question because, frankly, most people don't risk looking stupid in order to get the knowledge that they want. And I love that. Like, even people who will say, you know, I'm sorry, but I I heard your name, but I don't remember it. Or or, how do I pronounce it? Like, like, I have so much respect for a person who's just going to be like, time out. I don't know what just happened, but I want to stay with you. And you lost me like a minute ago with that big word you just used. Well, hey, with that, we should introduce ourselves because people who don't know, we both have unique last names that start with G. But I'm Tony Gapastone, just so you know, Holy Cannoli, a host. And my guest today... I'm Jelani Greenidge, uh, one of the pastors at Sunset Covenant and a, a speaker and hip-hop artist and freelance writer and stand-up comic. Yes, nice. Okay, good. So bring some of that, all of that. All right, so so back to what you were saying about uh, terrestrial radio. <laughs> back in the oh. 80s and 90s, you loved being able to yeah. access music. So what I loved was that feeling of, it, it wasn't the music itself, but that feeling of like we're all sort of participating at the same time. Like when you would listen to the radio, and yeah, they may tell you, oh, we're going to play this song, but it was also like, here's what the weather is like, here's what the traffic is like, and it's sort of like a... a they're creating this common shared world of like, this is the city we're in. This is the stuff we're dealing with. You know, there's the, like in Portland in June, there's always um, uh, the Rose Festival. And so they'll say, oh, you know, and the, and the ships are coming in at such and such a time. And so the bridges are up and we're going to, so make sure you give yourself extra time to go over here. And, and when the soldiers come off the, you know, boats and shake their hands and pose for pictures. And it's like, what I realized was that radio was this tool for sort of like getting everyone on the same page and allowing them to kind of have a shared sense of reality. And, and I feel like even the same, a similar thing happened uh, with television. Like, you know, when I was growing up in school and, uh, and, and a new episode of the A team came on and then like, that's what you would talk with your friends about the next day was, Oh, did you see the episode of the A team or whatever big show was on? And now, like, with the Internet, like, it's beautiful because there's all these there's just this huge cornucopia of content that you can take advantage of. But we're not all listening to the same music. We're not all watching the same shows like like when there's a huge mega hit, you know, something like like Game of Thrones or Lost or something like that. And and maybe, Mm -hmm. you know, but even then it's like we may be watching the same show, but we're not watching all of it at the same rate. And so some people are like, oh, I'm still on season one. Don't tell me anything. And everybody's like, oh, my gosh, I just saw the finale. It was amazing. Yeah. So I guess that's what I'm saying is I I love music, but I realized that music was kind of my avenue towards creating community. And and I was realized that I was trying to use music in that way. And that was sort of my pathway into learning more about what does it mean to create culture and community and and learn to live with people. And so I wanted to be known for that just as much as I wanted to be known as a musician. 
Well, can you talk about, so, you know, we talk a lot on this, pack, on this podcast about culture and church culture and the word worship and the word music, you know, are always connected, you know, in church culture. Right. We know that worship isn't always just music, but as someone who's curating it and creating it uh, and making music, it also is one of the most challenging pieces of church culture because it, it can be so divisive and there's so yeah. many opinions on either side. And, and I kind of hear what you're saying underneath all the challenges of being an, a multi-ethnic community and leading right. music for that kind of community. So talk about some of those challenges and what you faced and, you know, maybe some of the conclusions that you've come to now in this time. Sure. Um, I mean, I think, you know, one of the, <laughs> I had a lot of naive assumptions going into this process that, you know, quickly came to bite me in the butt, you know, like I, for example, I believed that if something was good aesthetically, like aesthetically pleasing, if it was a good song that people would just naturally want to get in on it. Mm -hmm. And then it took me a while to deconstruct that assumption into, well, what's good to me? Yeah. What like what is good sounding music to me? Well, it's all subjective that, to you, right? Right, and yeah. that's not. And so, so, other people might have different, uh, you know, sort of principles and how they how they assign goodness or aesthetic beauty or value to music. And right. so, and then I learned, you know, pretty quickly that some of those differences are, you know, fall along racial lines. And so, for example, yeah. um, for a lot of black people and a lot of black music the the rhythm is more important than the mm -hmm. um, melodic contour yeah. um, of a musical experience. And a song may have just the basic melody, but if the groove is hidden, if there's a certain amount of, um, um, you know, syncopation, which kind of means, you know, like uh, hits before and after the beat and, and sort of that rhythmic complexity to it, then a lot of people of color, especially black people, they're like, okay, I'm down with this. Uh -huh. Whereas, you know, a lot of white people, you know, rhythm is good, but it's not necessarily the main element. And we don't know where to clap. And so we right, yeah. And so, right. Yeah. And that's where you have all of that. And so um, being exposed to um, things like, like a lot of Irish melodies and, and learning, um, learning the, the, the beauty that can, um, that can take place in simplicity, right? And so, like for me, from my upbringing in the African American tradition, a lot of worship music is sung in three part harmony all the time. Like it's the default. Mm -hmm. And so, if there's a melody, like that's great, but then that means a part is on the melody. Soprano is usually on the melody, and that means altos are singing this, and tenors are singing this, and God bless them if baritones even get a part, and they're probably just <laughs> doubling the soprano melody. But whereas I, I would go in other spaces, and it was like, oh, everyone's just singing the melody. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. like, and so you have to pick a key and pick a song that has a singable enough melody for everyone to kind of jump in, because there isn't this sense of like, well, we're all singing in harmony. Like, you know, so, I mean, th those are two basic examples, but I guess my, my broader point was that I realized that people have not only different values that they assign to music, but also different entry points into music. And so for some people, um, they're only for, as a musician, there are some musicians that I encountered that were technically accomplished and really could play very well, but they required sheet music to do it. Yeah. They had developed their, um, 
their dexterity and their their just their chops, their musical way of playing um, from sheet music. And so if they didn't have it there. It was like, that's it. Like, right. you know, whereas then there are other players who never read music. And so they have this really finely tuned ear, but they were not accustomed to playing and looking at anything. Right. And so to put even forget just sheet music to even just to put a chord chart in front of them yeah. and to say, OK, follow, you know, this verse here and then follow to the chorus They're You know, they're doing this, like looking over here and having to look at me. And, it, it, you know, it just was a different experience for them. And so I realized and then that's and that's all. There's also like the the divide between, um, you know, people who came up with like a traditional acoustic um, instrumental background. So people who learn to play guitar or piano or the trumpet or the flute or whatever, and, and you may be in school or in some after school program or at church, you know, playing handbells or something versus there's now kind of a generational divide with a lot of millennials and post-millennials, Gen Z's, who their first exposure to music was primarily electronic. Mm-hmm. And so they learned you know, from apps, from like beat making apps or, um, you know, you know, through some, you know, like playing guitar here on their PlayStation. Um, and so their whole way of conceiving, uh, music has this electronic bent to it. And so then it's like, how do you get those people to play together? Mm. You know, you can't always have an app and sheet music and like, recordings for every single song that you're doing. And so then it becomes a question of like, how do you ask people to give a little and get outside of their comfort zone and believe that what will happen collectively will be greater than what you need, you know, than, than the sum of each of its parts. And so that was for me, the essential challenge of doing it. And that is no easy challenge because uh, what you're describing too, I've experienced is it's just in some ways it's easier to go, you know what, we're just going to have three different services. <laughs> we're going to have this right. service over here that's going to be right. all traditional and they're all going to have their sheet music and they're going to be amazing musicians. Then you're going to have this service over here. It's going to be more contemporary and they're going to have, they're going to they just play with chord charts. They don't read music anyways. They don't even know how to read right. music. And oh my gosh, it, it is, it's crazy making to try and figure out how to navigate that because you're trying to right. not only work with all these talented craftsmen but you're also trying to appease a people and invite them into something right. significant so right. and then you, you really only have six or seven songs to begin with if you're lucky <laughs> right yeah, yeah yeah if that right yeah yeah so how, how in the world have you made sense of it now i mean whew, one of one of the things that i, I do um to try to make things a little bit easier is i use um keyboard accompaniment tracks uh-huh. So I have um, mostly Yamaha uh, keyboards I've been doing this with, although there are other keyboards you can do this with now, uh, where I'll beforehand play out, like create this whole arrangement um, with, you know, bass lines and drums and keys and horns and whatever, organ, whatever have you. Um, and, and there are plenty of times, this is the other thing too, is that in my current job, I didn't finish telling my story, but basically I, I, I transitioned from doing this um, uh, emergency 911 work into becoming um, an associate pastor at a really small church. Um, and in truth, actually, most of the churches that I've served have been, you know, small to medium size. And even the medium sized church uh, where I was at was kind of in the middle of, of a collapse. And so they had had like a band, but then there was a time when 
they, you know, a lot of those folks had left. So my, the point I'm, I'm getting at is I started using keyboard tracks as a way of um, creating kind of a fuller sound and to be able to do the songs that I love that had like, you know, big beats and strong grooves without having to like bring in, mm. you know, a five or six piece band to like have the same feel. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so what it, what I, what it allows me to do is to play with the, the, the people who are in my circle at any given time. And so, you know, I may have a service where it's just me or me and a couple other singers and the keyboard, and we can still have a really robust sounding thing. Or I could have a service where it's me, a couple other singers, and a drummer and a guitarist, or and a drummer and a bassist. Still not the whole band, but because I can, you know, do things like selectively mute tracks, or um, you know, control the the levels and control the mix of the tracks in the room. Um, I can blend the live acoustic instruments with the digital track underneath, and still have it feel full and like kind of you know a good experience so that's my primary way of doing it but but i realized that that's just one way of doing it and you know i've you know done uh uh, workshops on it and i've kind of tried to show some people and there's a lot of um i think some resistance from some people because they feel like it's too complicated and it's a lot to learn and whatever and i understand that but it's like to me whatever choice you make you're if you believe in multi-ethnic ministry like you're going to have to put in extra work it's just the nature of the thing if you want i mean first of all if you want an easy job don't go into ministry at all period (laughs) but amen but especially right but but even like over and above that like like there's a there's a sense of simplicity and um you know like the just the the level of complexity rises when you involve people from different ethnic backgrounds. And there's also a richness and a beauty to it that can't be replicated outside of that. But it just means that you're going to have to put in extra work. So for me, using tracks as a way of kind of um, doing some of that work on the front end and making it a little bit easier to manage during the actual service itself. And then it makes it easier for me to like keep track of the room and like, you know, if there's a choir or other musicians and I can make eye contact and I can be doing the like typical worship leader um, things to engage the audience, like, you know, let's all lift our hands or let's all, you know, um, you know, uh, open our hearts to the Lord and like doing all those sort of like, like um, spoken um, uh, things in the context of the music. If you're just a keyboard player, like, it would take 85% of my brain just to make sure I'm playing the right changes and do like doing it, it, it you know, it, at tempo and in the right key and all of that. And so having the tracks kind of like free some of my brain space up yeah, cool. to be more in the moment and fully aware and to kind of like, you know, make it work that way. So before we're going to talk about race relations and racial justice in the church and in the world, but before we move on to that, I want to, just so people know, how would you describe multicultural, multi-ethnic ministry, multi-ethnic church? I mean, so, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a big question. I, I, the, the definition that I use, well, first of all, let me, de- before I define what the ministry is, let me define what I mean by multi-ethnic church. So, um, a lot of the people who talk about this, particularly, I'm going to give credit to um, Mark Deimaz, 
who is the current, I don't know, CEO or whatever, leader of uh, Mosaics Global. Um, he's written some great books on multicultural ministry. Um, and so uh, I don't know if he coined this term exactly or sort of coined this idea or if it's sort of flowed from the, the stream of thinkers and people in his orbit. So I'm giving him credit by huh? default, but I don't sure. know exactly who came up with this. But the idea is basically um, if you have a church where you have at least 20 percent of a non-dominant ethnicity, mm-hmm. then it can be considered multi-ethnic. And the reason why 20 percent is is kind of the dividing line is because 20% is usually the point at which it's usually the point where there's critical mass um, for there there to feel like there is another culture that's also operating in the church. Mm. If you have less than 20%, then basically what you have is a monocultural church experience with a few uh, people of ethnic diversity, but they have to kind of blend in to Uh the dominant ethnicity. And so, you know, what this means functionally, if you have a, a church of 100 people and um, less than 20 of those people are white, then it means all the non-white people, whether they're Asian or Latino or African-American or whatever, they're having to um, consciously and, and unconsciously adapt to the white aesthetic and the white way of doing things. Mm-hmm. But if you reach that 20% point, now... Um, it's a point at which either there's going to be more diversity and it's going to blend and become closer to like a 50-50 blend or, or, you know, the different kind of ethnic blends that are that are more um, common in like, you know, more um, diverse cities, you know, like in the Bay Area or, or in Chicago or whatever. You're going to get more towards that or eventually over time it's going to transition. Um, meaning it may have started out as a white church, but once you reach that 20% point, you'll get more people of color and then maybe some of the white people are going to leave and then it's eventually going to become a black church or a Hispanic church or an Asian church or what what have you. So the point is 20% is the critical point at which the other possibilities emerge. Mm -hmm. And prior to that point, you don't really have um, a a separate culture that's sort of inside the dominant culture. Mm -hmm. So if you keep that in mind, then basically any kind of, for me, multi-ethnic ministry means trying to um, operate in a church culture where you're having to um, connect and meet the needs of and find different ways to reach um, more than one cultural group. Yeah. And so whether that means, and for some churches, it, it means, you know, maybe it's, um, you know, mostly white church and um, a handful of um, Latinx people. And so their their conscious choice is then um, we're going to start incorporating Spanish language uh, into our service because that's a way that we can reach some of those folks. And even if they are also English speakers, to be to, to make the intentional choice to choose worship songs or to include in the liturgy um, Spanish, uh, the, the Spanish language basically says, we see you yeah. and we, we honor you yeah. and we are speaking to you that's great. as well as the other white people in the room. So good. Now, like that's not always like the best move and that's not always the most effective. And there's all these ways that it can go wrong and whatever. And there's, you know, risks of tokenism, whatever. But the point that I'm making is 
if you're talking about multicultural or multi-ethnic ministry, it means you're filtering your like all of the different choices that you make as a ministry leader. You're filtering them through the lens of how are we going to how are we going to meet or not meet the needs, but but speak or connect to the different cultural groups that are a part of our community. It's good. Because it requires that. And if you're not thinking in that way, yeah. then either you're not a multi-ethnic church or you are a multi-ethnic church and you're just not serving your people well. Yeah. That's so convicting. Both of those things are so convicting. Uh, I don't think I've been a part of a multi-ethnic church uh, and I'm not a part of a multi-ethnic church now. I hear what you're saying and I, but, and I know this is so important. And speaking to you know, the listeners... I feel as if uh, this conversation today is one of the most important conversations we can be having uh, right now in this time because of all the race relations and injustices happening to you know people of color and to the black community. And it starts with our conversations that we're having in, in, in the church. And it starts with what's happening in the church, I believe. You know, I think I've talked about it on this podcast before, but man, it was so revelatory to me years ago. We, I think we had a handful of black people in the church I was formerly a part of. It's predominantly white. We didn't have any people of color really on staff, maybe one or two. Um, but I did all of the branding and a lot of the visual look of the church. And, you know, one of our black sisters in the community, you know, who had a good relationship and we did certain things together and she felt totally free to speak into my life. It was awesome. She said, you know what? Uh, I've been a part of this church for you know however many years now. I'm one of the only black people here. I feel like I'm supposed to be here to speak, you know, to the the lack in this in this church. And she said one of the things that could really help me, just me, <laughs> is seeing me in your visuals. And she said, you know, not just even like in the banners you put, but like the slides you use on Sundays. They're all white people. <laughs> Right. And that was like huge for me, Jelani. I was like, oh my yeah. gosh. Like I would, it was just, I, I guess I, I want to be humble and, and honest and say like, it was just lazy on my part. Like it wasn't like I couldn't access people of color in our church to put into our photo shoots or to put into our slides. It was just like, uh, you know, there's so, so many things I could do and I would go for whoever was available it was in my circle were white people. So that was one thing that just like, wow, like made me realize I was creating such a disservice and harm to mm -hmm. people of color and to the multicultural potential that we had in this community. So now I'm on this other side, and I'm working part-time with a small church, predominantly white as well. Uh, we have two people of color on our staff of five people, uh, and they're in the Asian descent. Um, but I know like this conversation that we, we, I want to have with you today that spurred with the article that you posted yesterday <clears throat> is, is something that... like. Sometimes I don't even know where to start. I don't even know, I have words. I know I need to have this conversation. We had Andre Henry on episode 40, and uh, his, I love his, his words to me were, it's not black people's job to help white people not be racist, Tony. It's like your job. You need to help white people not be racist. You should do anti-racist work. And I really felt like I, I hear that. I receive that. I don't, I'm trying. I don't know what to do. So... Two days ago, the Amber Geiger and um, uh, uh, Brant Jean yeah. thing goes viral. Uh, this, you know, the backstory is if you don't know, uh, this man named Botham Jean was murdered in his home, in his apartment, uh, in yeah. his own house, doing nothing. He was, you know, he was just watching television, eating ice cream, I believe, 
when a white police officer barged into his apartment and shot him. And it, I mean, obviously that is a huge injustice. That's minimizing it. Um, and here we are yesterday at her sentencing and she got, or two years, two days ago, her sentencing, she got 10 years for his murder. Uh, but Botham's brother issues an apology and a plea to hug her. Uh, and he comes off as a Christ follower. He uses the words of Christ and he, he says he doesn't even want her to go to jail. I see this and I'm like, to be honest, I'm like, conflicted. I'm conflicted, one, that he could forgive her, but I'm happy for him. That's his story, right? Right. I'm also conflicted that he says things like he doesn't want her to go to jail and he, he would, would want the best for her. And so my thinking is like, you know, my brain is going like 10 miles a minute because I want to be engaged in this conversation and police brutality and injustice is real for, against the black community, I believe. And I think to myself, I think the best thing for her is to go to jail. And sometimes true love expresses itself with consequences, even, right. even if we forgive. So I just posted like the words, this is something, because I had nothing else to say. I didn't even know <laughs> what to right. say about that. But it stirred yeah. up all of this conversation, right? It stirred up a lot of people saying, this is amazing. What a great act of forgiveness. Look, at this is how people should love people. This is how Christians should be. But I know right. there was another side to the story. And you presented in an article called... Um, uh, the, the gift of grace that don't weaponize it. I think I just butchered your yeah. title, but something. Yeah. Like that. So I wanted to have yeah. you on to talk about this side because it's a nuanced discussion, Johnny and I, Jelani and you, I felt like you, you brought some uh, great thoughts to it. So essentially um, I'll kind of take people through sort of the 32nd version of my thought process. Yeah. Uh, um, as I saw that, I saw the picture. I didn't actually see the video. I just saw the the picture. To, uh-huh. What what got me was just a photo of them hugging, and then I heard on the radio that he had actually asked the judge, "Is it okay if I give her a hug?" And he had talked about like you know forgiving her. It actually um, it made me think of um, in uh, I imagine what what might have happened uh, at the end of the story. And the the parable of the the the, the prodigal son, um, the lost son. No one uses the word prodigal anymore. In <laughs> um, Jesus' parable of the lost son, about how you know he was away, and then he and he comes to his senses and he comes back, and the father holds a party and he embraces him, and it's this really extravagant, loving, accepting move on behalf of the father, who has every right to not you know to disown him, to basically not treat him as even though he has a son. Um, because the son had previously behaved as in a way that expressed, you know, basically like, hey, dad, I wish you were dead. Just give me your money now. So anyway, the point of all the m- me thinking through that, I was thinking, what would it have been like for people to witness that? And especially at the party, if he's having a party and inviting a bunch of people, what are the neighbors thinking as they're uh, as they're witnessing this? And then I thought, OK, what if the neighbors have teenagers themselves and what are they thinking as they're thinking this because i remember what it was like when i was a teenager and i'm super devious (laughs) so i was thinking i bet there's got to be at least one teenager who's thinking yeah i can probably work this to my advantage and so then they're probably making note and thinking the next time i get in trouble all i have to do is be like well you know dad i didn't 
I didn't expect you to kill the fatted calf, but I was hoping that maybe you would have been a little bit more uh, uh, understanding about this uh, accident I just had with the car. Um, and and the, the point I was sort of getting at is there's a way in which sometimes we can view something like that and try to use it to our advantage, try to use it as a way of um, uh, minimizing or in sometimes uh, in some cases escaping accountability for our actions. Mm-hmm. And like that's a typical teenagery thing to do is to be self-centered and to only be thinking about how can I make this work for me? And so it's a little bit um, understandable and in some cases even like kind of endearing uh, thought of some kid like, you know, trying to figure out a way to like work the angle on this. But I brought that up. And so I sort of tell that story in the article as a way of saying, um, if I was a parent reacting to that, I would kind of be like, dude, don't try that. Like, you know better than that. <laughs> yeah. Like, come on. Yeah. Um, and that same kind of reaction, that same kind of, dude, don't do that, is what I was thinking um, as I have reflected back on a lot of the responses that I've seen from uh, white people in the past uh, when they respond to acts of public forgiveness by black mm-hmm. uh, people who have been victimized by violence um, towards their um, white aggressors. And so the most obvious version of this was um, the um, the nine people who were killed in Emanuel, South Carolina, by Dylan Roof, I believe his name was, who uh, came into that church with the intent to kill them, um, primarily because they were black. And I, I want to say it this way, because there's sort of this uh, alternate narrative that's being floated by some people um, that, oh, you know, he killed them because they were Christian. Um, I mean, maybe that factored in, but I mean, he said he wanted to start a race war. So like he killed them because they were black. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then when some of the family members of them, of uh, those nine uh, expressed forgiveness to Dylan Roof, what I saw, and I want to be clear, I didn't see this as a widespread thing, but I did see it happen from enough prominent voices and enough, uh, even just kind of just comments on Facebook from people who were not necessarily in charge or whatever, but just expressing their mind. The sentiment that I saw was, well, man, that guy gets it. Like, why can't black people just forgive and forget and move on? And that hurt me. Yeah. I mean, it offended me. Yes. But more than that, it just hurt me. Like, it hurt my feelings. Yeah. Because it made me – because really what I heard in that was I care more about putting this issue to bed than I care about the actual problems that you or some of your people may be dealing with. And it would make me feel better if we could just put this issue to bed so I don't have to hear your complaining. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, they didn't use those words. But that's kind of the sentiment that I felt. And so what I wrote, what I wrote in this article was basically a way of saying, please don't do that. Like, it's okay that he expressed this desire to forgive. As a matter of fact, it's more than okay. It's a beautiful Christ-like thing, and and it's part of the essence of the gospel. However, if we only focus on the forgiveness and we don't give a um, commensurate attention to the horror 
and the injustice of the thing that prompted the forgiveness instead, mm-hmm. then we are short-circuiting the gospel. We are not really um, going through a, a process. One of the things that I said in my article is that forgiveness is important, and and it's like it's in the Bible for a reason. But it's most it's designed to be a part of a broader process of shalom. And so shalom is this this Hebrew word that basically means, um, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so you know this is sort of my layman attempt at unpacking this really huge important word. But shalom just basically means like full and total restoration. Um, it, you know, if you're from the tech world, you can think of it as like a factory reset. You know, like shalom means uh, making it as good as new as it was when it came out of the box. And so if that's what we're looking for, if that's the goal as Christ followers we have, it is to help our society get back to this place of harmony and beauty and, um, and, and, and community um, that, that Adam and Eve experienced, you know, in, in the garden, then, like, we can't just be satisfied with, oh, one guy issued uh, a forgiveness and so the whole thing's over because that's that's not shalom right and and real shalom is when we are not only concerned with the immediate aftermath of something like this but we're willing to delve into what are some of the root issues that caused it to take place in the first place and so when i hear people say oh man why can't those black folks just uh just forgive and forget really what i what i take from that is I'm not interested in getting into the 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 root, uh, you know, the, the root causes because that would be inconvenient for me sure. because that would require something from me that I'm not willing to give, yep. and and so and that's not Christ-like. Like yeah. that's not what Paul said in Philippians two about regarding others as being uh, more important than yourselves and being like-minded and having the same mind and the same heart. So my point and the, the reason why I wrote what I wrote is to say, like, yes, forgiveness is a gift and let's treat it as a gift, but let's not weaponize it. Let's not turn it into this ugly thing that we use to shut down progress and to minimize that the pain and hurt of other people. That word picture really worked for me. It really resonated and I really appreciate it. I think, you know, for me as a white person, pastor, white person, uh, I'm wrestling through how to navigate these conversations. Sunday's approaching. Ironically, I am speaking on a series called Walking in Love from the book of Ephesians. And I have this picture of uh, Brant Jean hugging Amber Geiger, right? Mm -hmm. It could be so easy to put that picture on a slide and say, here's a guy who's walking in love and move on. Right. Right, But what I hear you saying is there's so much underneath that picture that has to be fleshed out. There's so much nuance. There's so much pain. And as somebody else said, um, I think it was Andre Henry, uh, who talked about, he wrote an article too on media. And he said something like, if we don't get to claim that picture of forgiveness, if we didn't stand up for the injustice when it happened. Right. And, and I think as a, as a white person, I want to, warn or caution white churches to be careful. Like, yeah, we, we have a responsibility to be raising these issues when they're happening on the spot. We need to be crying out Black Lives Matter. We need to be crying out there's right. injustices in the system that we're a part of. I own that. I'm a part of it. I have oppressed the, the narrative, like you said, to say just move on, just forgive. 
when I don't acknowledge that there's been a radical uh, life, uh, a, a life taken radically and a family that has been uh, hurt and harmed because someone else saw the skin color of their son and pulled a gun on him. So uh, it's just this like so messy for, for me and I want to do good in this and I don't want to cause more harm. Uh, so I, I guess I ask you, Jelani, if there's any, <laughs> any other things you would say, like I hear you saying, don't weaponize this moment because it right. makes people feel like you're, you're almost like we're shaming them into jumping on the forgiveness party and letting white right. people off the hook. Is there any yeah. other cautions you want to put out there again? And I'm really, I'm wary of doing this cause I know that it's not your job <laughs> to sure, make me, sure. you know, less racist, but I would welcome, you know, as a, as a pastor, as a black pastor, trying to create multi-ethnic community. What are some things that can help us navigate through this conversation? Well, I mean, I think one of the one of the um, one of the scriptures I keep coming back to in Romans twelve, uh, Paul talks about rejoicing with those who rejoice and mourning with those who mourn. And I, I think he wrote it that way because oftentimes they're intermingled. Yeah. It's not like, okay, it's Tuesday. We're rejoicing. <laughs> uh, morning is scheduled for Thursday. Everyone yeah. please wear your sackcloth and ashes. Yeah. Like it doesn't work that way. Yeah, yeah. And so when you think of it in that way, then you're allowed the, um, the liberty to not only treat people as individuals and, and to guess that like, yeah, like maybe this person over here is reacting and seeing goodness over here. But then, another person of color, either black person, or maybe, you know, maybe you, you have like three black people in the same family and they're all responding to it indifferently and having different reactions. And so to be able to, to have the freedom and the flexibility to say, I mean, even from, from up front as a pastor or as a worship leader to say, Hey, you know, um, we, there's, there are a lot of us that are still processing, um, the enormity of this incident. And because of the details, you know, it, it, it's become the sort of this, um, national thing that as a nation we're talking about. And we recognize that some of you are, uh, focusing on the healing and the, um, you know, and the beauty of forgiveness, but others of you aren't there yet. Others of you are still weeping yeah, and you good. are still mourning the loss of this young man. And both of those are valuable expressions of faith. That is like so good. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think, I, I think just sort of being able to carry, um, carry the tension of those two ideas at the same time, mm-hmm. I think can help us to honor people who are, you know, at different points, along the spectrum. And I think another thing that I would say is that you um, (laughs) expect people to have different um, views or different experiences of the same thing. Yeah. You know, I mean, like (laughs) all the, all the film nerds will, will probably uh, relate to this, but you know, in, in movies like, like Rashomon or, or, um, Oh, what's the other one? I can't think of it. But there, there are a lot of like um, really classic movies where they they use the storytelling device of seeing the same event through the eyes of different people, and as you do that, you gain a fuller sense of the complexity of the event, 
than you would have had if you just saw it through the eyes of one character. And so um, I encourage people, you know, both in terms of um, their own studying of the scriptures to um, to imagine, you know, what did this particular instance look like for these different people involved? And so and and I mean, it doesn't matter like what what story it is. I mean, um, like like um, here's a really foundational story for multi-ethnic ministry. The story of um, Peter in the book of uh, Acts in Acts chapter 10, when Peter is um, called away to do this ministry um, and basically God speaks to him and gives him this vision about like these animals and food. And he's basically saying to Peter, okay, these things that you thought of as unclean, um, don't think of them as unclean because I've made them clean. And so we enter the story through Peter. And so we, we, and then we, and Peter goes on this journey and then he meets some people and, you know, um, uh, he's, um, I can't think of his name, but there's, um, another, uh, I think Greek uh, person that Peter meets and uh, is invited to his home and then he preaches to them and blah, blah, blah. Well, my point is, okay, that's great. We've, we've gone through this story and we've seen Peter's perspective, but now imagine what it would be like to be um, the other person. So to be the person who God called and said, I want you to go to this person's house. You don't know him. I want you to go and convince him to come with you. And then once he comes with you, then invite him into your house and have all of your friends come and listen to what he has to say. Like, that's also an equally, like, challenging, like, scary thing to do. And so, um, but he did it. Cornelius, that's his name. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and so, but Cornelius followed through. And so to be able to sort of view the story from the perspective of both Peter and Cornelius then provides a a greater sense of depth and, and marveling at what God did, right? Because God didn't just use Peter. He also used Cornelius and it was the two of them coming together and operating through the flow of the spirit that caused this wonderful thing to happen. And, but without both of them responding, we wouldn't have had that. And so I feel like there's just all these instances in scripture where, we have all of these assumptions about um, who, like who the story focuses on, or as we interpret the story, like we have all these assumptions as um, who we are as people and where, like what roles, what similar roles that we're playing in our own lives. And so I've heard a lot, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure about this, but I've heard a lot of white people say very honestly, like, when we look at the, a lot of the stories of Jesus and of the disciples and in their um, challenges with, for example, the Roman government, we, because we are Christians, we automatically identify with the disciples and with um, those believers who, but they were religious and ethnic um, minorities under this system. And so the reality is, and again, I'm not necessarily saying that I always believe this, but um, I've seen a lot of white people say this, and I, I think they're onto something, <laughs> that for some, for some white people, and I'm going to be very specific, for some conservative white people who are pastors in churches or who, you know, who do ministry but who are also elected officials or who own their own businesses, like these are people who represent this system. And so they they can't in good conscience um, imagine themselves as being the underdogs of the story 
when they are the ones who are the gatekeepers. Yeah. They're, they're more, like, from a structural standpoint, they're closer to being the Romans in this story. Mm. And it doesn't mean that I'm saying, like, oh, white people are evil or, like, like you know, they're, you know they're, they're trying to do us harm or anything like that. But my point is, yeah. if you imagine yourself always from the perspective of the underdog in the story, but you're not also paying attention to what's happening in real life, then maybe there's a dimension to the gospel that you're missing. I guess that's the big main point I'm trying to make. Pastor Jelani Greenidge, everybody, dropping some truth right there. That's good. Thank you. When you were talking about Peter and Cornelius, it made me think, and it just it's convicting to me because uh, Acts chapter 10 has been influential for me in becoming affirming and inclusive with the LGBT community. Right. And I always go back to that, that story and I think about, well, what I feel God has told many of us who, like Dan Collison, who are receiving LGBT people into our churches and uh, marrying, you know, same-gender couples and hiring gay clergy. Uh, we see the same things, like where God said to Peter, these are no longer unclean, so eat the shrimp, have some bacon, right. uh, Peter, yeah. right? Same thing. Like, we used to think about homosexuality in this way, and God's saying, no, you missed the point. Like, that's how we're interpreting it, right? Uh, but there's so many other people who are at different parts of the story. And I know I need to be gracious and compassionate and patient because not everyone is there. And sometimes right. it's a lonely, it's, it's disillusioning to be Peter, to all of a sudden have your whole mm-hmm. world turned upside down and right. feel like, wow. And so in the same regard, I, I really appreciate that perspective, you know, in regards to race. You know, I just, you know, I'm a white person, so I need to say it. We've missed it. We have caused so much harm. Uh, we've tried. We've tried. I, I want to believe we've tried to do good. But in our good intentions, we have, we have robbed black people of their process. We have robbed black people of narrating, driving their own narrative, you know, leading their own story. Mm-hmm. We've tried to put on, we've tokenized, you know, the black community. And I, I'm saying that is for me, not all white people, but, you know, I know I right. have. I know I have tried to do good, but, in, you know, I've had my black friends tell me, like, it's actually really hard when you parade me in front of the, the congregation to talk about my experience. It doesn't, it doesn't help. It actually makes me feel like I am under a microscope and I don't feel apart. I feel like I'm on the outside trying to, you know, raise my flag to help you guys follow, but you're not. So, so... Thank you, man, for, for coming on and for, I know we could talk a lot longer. This is not going to solve this problem, you know, in, right. in one podcast, but I hope that in some small way, you know, even in our Facebook conversations, I mean, I love the way you entered into the conversation with a lot of white people commenting about how Christ-like and amazing, um, Brent Jean was, you said, Hey, this is not an attack, but this is a reminder. And it was just so great, dude, for you to enter into this, to the conversation and remind us because, you know, we're fragile. White people can be fragile and you need to have some anger and we need to give you permission to be angry and frustrated. And it's not always easy for us to do it. And I apologize on behalf of white people to black people that we don't make it easy for you. I mean, I appreciate that. Um, I do. And I, I guess, you know, I have a lot of thoughts running through my head. One of the things that I I guess I would want to seize on is that this dynamic that we're talking about, this this sort of uneasy, I don't want to say truce, but like this this, um, difficult, tentative, like 
trying to navigate what it means for us to live in 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 an honest relationship with one another, with one you know, not one another, just like one on one, but like you know, in a in a yeah. communal sense. I feel like these tensions are like all throughout the New Testament, and frankly, I feel like part of the part of what animates me as a Christian, part of why I continue to believe in Jesus, is that I, I feel like these—I don't want to say these battles have already been fought, but I, I just feel like this difficulty that we're having, like we are not alone in this. Um, as a matter of fact, there, there's a great book that just uh, came out um, by uh, Scott McKnight, who we also, um, you know, go back to our North Park days when Scott McKnight yeah. was on staff at North yeah. Park. Um, he wrote this great book called Reading Romans Backwards. And um, the and I haven't finished, um, haven't finished, I haven't even started, I'll be honest. Uh, you read the back I've read a lot of stuff about this book. <laughs> I haven't read the book yet. So, um, so uh, Scott, if you hear this and you feel like I've, I've, screwed up uh explaining your book i take uh, full ownership of that um and come on the podcast scott come on the podcast and tell us what the book yeah, is really about. that's right scott come on the podcast and straighten this out but anyway his the idea of the book is that um at the end of the book of romans um paul starts talking about all of the sort of the ethnic struggles and tensions that were going on with the church at rome and really um Reading Romans backwards is an effective way to look at the whole uh, letter because if you start at the end and sort of take in this idea that you have these two competing groups that are all trying to be church at the same time and trying to live in community with one another, then everything else that he writes makes more sense in light of that. When a lot of times people look at the book of Romans and they think of it as being a mostly like dry, purely theological treatise about, you know, um, you know, salvation and and like all of these sort of kind of dry, heady uh, intellectual ideas. What Scott is saying is like, no, the, the whole point of the book is that these are the things that this church needed to know in order to live well with each other and in order to truly be Christ to one another as they dealt with their conflict. And so if you read Romans backwards, if you start with that and kind of flow into that, then all the rest of that stuff makes sense. Now, the reason why I bring that up is because like he constantly talks about um, the strong versus the weak and how there are um, there were groups in this book that had more of the social power and other um, people in the in the group that had less social power. And he has things to say to both of them. Right. And so like and, and certain times he's saying to the strong, like, you know, um, uh, you know, pay attention to the weak, you know, like don't don't squash them. But also to the weak, he also says, like, hey, you know what? Be gracious to the strong. Um, you know, don't uh, don't use. Um, and again, I'm, I'm I'm not expressing this really in an artful way, but basically he's saying like. Um, be gracious to each other and don't use the fact that they are in the stronger position as an excuse to, you know, um, to crap on them or to insult them or to be resentful toward them. Like, um, and so that my, my whole point in bringing all of that up is just to say that like this struggle that we're having as white people and black people, Mm -hmm. even though it's not like exactly the same as what was happening in the new Testament, there are some really important lessons that we can learn. And, and 
learning and absorbing those lessons and be, and living that out, to me, that's what it should mean to be the church. Every church should be absorbing those lessons and trying to find ways of authentically living those out. And the fact that we have this racial divide in America means we don't have to like search far and wide for this opportunity to live it out. It's in front of our faces like 24-7 every day. And so I, I, the reason why I came onto this podcast, the reason why I'm, I'm glad to talk about it is because I feel like this is God's way of showing us, hey, this is your homework. This is the way that you live this out. Like, take these lessons, receive my wisdom, walk with the spirit that I've given you, like, like, you know, be equipped and then do this work. It's right here with you. You don't have to go, you don't have to travel overseas to do it. It's right here. And so that's, that's what I'm passionate about. Jelani Greenidge, thank you so much. Where can people find you? Um, yeah, you can find me in a lot of places. So, um, you know, I was, I was almost, I get really excited. I'm obviously on social media, so you can find me at Facebook. Um, I'm also on Twitter at Jelani Greenidge. I'm on Instagram at Jelani G Natural. Um, and I'm also, I'm wearing this shirt because, um, G Natural is my, uh, my hip hop stage name. And so I'm actually putting out this, um, uh, this release, um, called how I resist. It's sort of all about, um, how I try to be a, a countercultural believer in this really polarized time. And so um, if you look for G Natural, uh, you find me on YouTube. I'm putting out some videos. I'm doing some, uh, I'm releasing some singles on there. And so um, I can be found in a lot of different ways. But I'll, thanks I'll, for having me. I'll put all that stuff in the show notes. And if you send me any of those songs, I'll put it, oh, yeah, uh, I'll put it in the credits here. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to yeah, do it. Yeah, baby. Okay. It's, it's part of what I do. Cool, Jelani. Well, man, this is great. Thanks so much. It's been it's been a while since we saw each other face to face. I know we always connect on social media. It's been great, but let's have you back on again, man. I love your words and uh, thanks for teaching me and for sharing with our listeners. I really appreciate it. When I think about comparisons, I think about how we compare sense, but it's really just a pair of sense. We're gonna parent sense and we spare sense, we share sense, we compare it sense. I'm staring since the fact is that a sad but true that this is what we do as Americans in rap. And in the same way, another game's played, and it happens all the time, like holiday parades. It's the idea that when we make success, it's a war with ourselves on whether we're blessed. We're fighting a shadow, internal battles, trying to decide on how well we rap. But our dreams won't last, we can't get past the past, cause now I think of how I feel in every one of these tests. Just like how I used to front because I wanted respect. So I tried so hard to feel like I belonged in a club, but in the end I fell. I guess I wasn't a thug. I also used to try to look at other people who sing. And then like a Pharisee, I scoffed because I thought that I was better than them. I never tried to understand what was behind the decisions. And I didn't recognize that the law that I had was blinding my vision. I just assumed that. I was immune to that because I knew that. I wouldn't do that. But by doing that, I just proved that I could lose track and then do it back. Or even worse stuff. Powerful, arrogant, hurtful stuff. Saying I was better because the church said it sucks. There's a lot of what I learned. It's the knowledge that the world is in need of love. It's coming have greed and stuff. And it's something that I'm guilty of. But what I'm really wanting is to move past and trash to do last and action for me. Yup, this is not more satisfying than coming in as a brand and humbly recognize that someone to make a change, someone will make a plan, I'll show my faith again in a whole other way to play It's a trap to look at him or her and think what would occur if we had this or that. It's a trap, it's a trap. No matter where you've been, all gifts they come from him. No need to fill the gap. It's a trap to look at him or her and think what would occur if we had this or that. It's a trap, it's a trap. No matter where you've been, 
was an awareness in the sin of regretful jealousy but then friends would see me and see only good they failed to see the rest the struggles and drama inside my family all this all all the issues i conquered and dealt with handily and um it's kind of silly if they'd been deliberate they would have seen that my mistakes are not better or worse it's just kind of different so if you live for christ and you want to get far take it from my man admiral everybody wants that fame but what if it comes with pain no one can possibly win comparison It's a trap to look and remember And think what would occur If we had this or that It's a trap It's a trap No matter where you've been Our gifts they come from him No need to fill the gap It's a trap It's a trap to look and remember And think what would occur If we had this or that It's a trap It's a trap No matter where you've been Our gifts they come from him No need to fill the gap It's a trap Run around town looking at what you don't got. Here's a new thought. I mean, that is rude. To a guy who can provide, protect, reduce, and help you choose a better attitude. Run around town looking at what you don't got. Here's a new thought. I mean, that is rude. To a guy who can provide, protect, reduce, and help you choose a better attitude. Obsessing over stuff. Don't do it. Don't do it. Never thinking it's enough. Don't do it. Don't do it. Getting heated over fluff. Don't do it. Don't do it. Giving thanks for daily bread. Yeah, do that instead. We be obsessing over stuff. Don't do it. Don't do it. Never thinking it's enough. Don't do it. Don't do it. And heat it over fluff. Don't do it. Don't do it. Giving thanks for daily bread. Yeah, do that instead. We be obsessing over stuff. Don't do it. Don't do it. Never thinking it's enough. Don't do it. Don't do it. And heat it over fluff. Don't do it. Don't do it. Bravemaker.com to make your tax-deductible donation today. 
Thanks for listening to Holy Cannoli. If you liked my dad's podcast, please subscribe, give it a review, and share it with someone you think would be encouraged by it.